Hi folks, before we start the podcast, I would like to ask you to help us keep this podcast platform going. Uh, the podcast you're going to hear is Rory's conversation around with Raise the Roof and the activism that's happening across the country. As you're aware, we continue to try and put forward those stories, tell people, give people the space to share what's happening and, and get involved. Uh, and it takes time, effort, money, and it doesn't happen without your support. And the model we use, it's not perfect, but it works. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise You just click the link to see if there's a level that suits you to help us keep going. It's the only source of income we effectively have on these podcasts because we don't do ads or sponsors. We are not backed by any of the major corporate uh, podcast platforms and we don't want to be. So to, to have that independence costs in terms of opportunity costs as well, the way we try to bridge that gap is by hoping that of the thousands of people listening, some of you will put your hands in the pocket and pay it forward. So once more, I'm asking you, please go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise and help us keep the tortoise shack going. Thanks for the support. Enjoy the podcast. Talk to you all very soon. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. And today is a special podcast, which is outlining um, and discussing the uh, the ongoing housing and homelessness crisis, but importantly, solutions and even more importantly, what people can actually do about it, what you can do about it, what we can do about it, action. And the Raise the Roof Coalition, which some listeners might be familiar with, um, is one of the um, various groups which have been campaigning on the housing crisis for a number of years in which I am part of um, and it includes the main trade unions in Ireland, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, SIP2, the INTO, the ASTI, um, and many others. It also includes student unions like the USI, um, it includes the National Women's Council of Ireland, the Children's Rights Alliance, um, the Irish Traveller Movement, and more, and also opposition political parties and homeless and housing agencies, Focus Ireland, Simon, um, for Peter McVary and Home for Good. So it is very clear this is a huge civil society, cross-civil society movement. Um, and it is organizing, it organized a protest back in 2018, which had over 10,000 people at the Dáil. It's organizing a series of public meetings around the country. So it was in the post-COVID context to try and uh, get people involved again and get people to hear the issues. And it has is providing speakers on those, and I'm speaking at one in Maynooth. Um, but I'm Magdara from Magdara um, from the ICTU, from ICTU is going to be on later, and he will outline exactly the meetings that are coming up. My first guest today, um, I'm going to have three guests kind of to discuss this in short, um, I suppose, detail. And I, I sent on a couple of questions. My first guest is a guest that listeners will be very familiar with, Louise Bayliss, who is the campaigns coordinator with Focus Ireland. Louise, it's great to have you back on again um, on Reboot Republic. Great to have me, Rory. Thanks a million for the invite. Yeah, I must start counting. I think Michael Taft had the highest number of uh, repeat appearances on Reboot, but I'd say now you could be getting close at this point. Ah, uh, no, I'd say I'm still a novice. I'm still <laughs> not at all, not at all. Listen, Louise. Um, unfortunately, um, in terms of homelessness, we are really in a dire situation again, aren't we? Like we spoke probably Christmas when things were clearly getting bad after. Um, just before Christmas, and now we're we're May, and homelessness is back pre-pandemic levels. It, it is, and it's really worrying. I mean, it's 
really shocking to see that last month's figures at the end of April um, that were released at the end of May showed that homelessness was over the 10,000 mark again. And that's just horrendous. And it's specifically horrendous when you think that's homelessness that's counted. That's people that are accessing emergency accommodation. It doesn't include people who are couch surfing. It doesn't include people who've been evicted and are doubling up in their friends and families' houses. It doesn't include women and children and refuges or indeed people in direct provision. So while we name it as over 10,000, we know that really isn't the full extent of it. And we're very close and, and worryingly so that this month when the figures are released, we are very close to, and I hope we don't, but it's it's looking more and more likely that we're going to reach over 3,000 children in emergency accommodation. And that is really a case of us all bowing our heads down in shame. And yeah. last week we were at a conference, an international conference on homelessness that was from Fianza and it was held in Dublin um, and it had all the uh, EU organisations And what struck me going to that conference, when we spoke about family homelessness, we were um, very much the outliers, ourselves in the UK, I should add, uh, in, in that there was such a thing as family homelessness. They were absolutely in shock that there were families homeless in Ireland. They said that does not happen, that there's such emergency wraparound services for families in other EU countries. They just looked at us and looking at them go, well, how does that how does that happen? So, you know, it, 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 it's really good to share international experiences like that. And, and for us to realise how shocking it is that a country our size has, over, you know, we're just about to reach 3,000 children homeless. Yeah, it really is. I think it's something, you know, we've been having this debate ongoing for years around the, the question of, you know, our levels of homelessness compared to other countries. But we really do have an unprecedented, you know, level and amount of, as you say, families and children who are homeless and shocking the increases again. Um, in terms of the housing crisis and homelessness, where do you see it now? Well, well we're, we're, we're very much not optimistic. We, we totally support the housing for all strategy. You know, there's money being put in and there's, you know, uh, in theory, 90,000 social housing units coming on stream by 2030. So we have to believe and we have to work with the government to achieve that. That's our only hope. But we'll be realists as well. And a lot of these things need to start happening now. We need to see direct targeted plans. And we're not seeing them now. But what we are seeing is we know the numbers of NOTs being issued by landlords. You know, we can see that through the RTB. We know that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. And that's really worrying. Um, and, And it's worrying about certain things. I mean, the state is relying, as you know, Rory, on HAP and the private rental market being a solution for social housing. It absolutely not is not. Firstly, yeah. there's the security, you know, people being subject to the private rental market when it is so tumultuous at the moment. And secondly, the affordability. And what we are seeing, which again was predictable, was HAP rates haven't gone up since 2016, yet at the same time, um, rents haven't been controlled. Now, the reason we were told HAP rates weren't going up was to control the market, to take the heat out of the market, to reduce the inflationary costs, which is all good, but that didn't happen. So mm. what has happened is that burden of rent increases has gone directly onto people who are struggling to afford a home in the first place. That's really worrying. And, and there is no mechanism to ensure that people who are paying HAP top-ups are left with enough money to live. 
And in many cases, they are not. We saw that in the EU Silk Report that was issued about three or four weeks ago. We saw that people who are in receipt of HAP, 59% of them are at risk of poverty once they pay the housing costs. That's shocking. And what we are seeing now more and more are people who exited homelessness through the use of HAP, because bear in mind, Rory, 70% of people leaving emergency accommodation aren't going into social housing. They're going into the private rental market. They're at all those risks again. 70% of them are using HAP. It's not affordable anymore for them. And so many of those families are at risk because of arrears of, of entering back into emergency accommodation. And that's shocking. And I know there was an announcement by Dara O'Brien that the discretionary HAP rates would go by, up by 20%. That's so far short of what we need from 20%. It's so far short of what we need. Um, it's only applicable for people outside Dublin. Their discretionary rates were 20% and it's gone up to 35%. But for people in Dublin, the discretionary rate was all, already 50% and it's made no input. The only positive thing out of that statement that he made around how was that the single people will be able to avail of a couple rate. That might help in the short term with, with single people who are trapped in emergency accommodation at the moment. We're tinkering around the ed edges. We need major change around HAP. Again, as I said, I don't believe HAP is the solution to our housing crisis. But until we get what we need and the supply of housing is, is there for us, we need HAP to be affordable and we need it to have some security for all households. And, and of course, as well, the issue is essentially... They hadn't. They haven't actually. While they raised the, as you say, the the singles um hap limit up to a couple's level, they've basically left couples and families they with have. the same hap level um payment. Aside that from yes, councils have discretion, but you have to apply for that discretion. You have to look for it. You have to. Yeah, it, it, and, and again, as I said, even with the 50% discretionary rates in Dublin, still people are falling well below the market rate. And again, in in, in outside Dublin areas, the 20% going up to 35% will help people, but it's still not adequate. And, and until we, and, and the whole thing about even the rates not being adequate, people then, you know, do the top up to the landlords and there is no mechanism. And this is really scary. There's no mechanism to make sure that people have a certain, amount of money to live on and that's really worrying and it's one of the things that like Focus Ireland are running a campaign around HAP at the moment and it's one of the things we're asking for is that there is some mechanism that people are checked to make sure that they have enough money to live on. I mean the Social Welfare Act in, in 2015, there is a social, I think it's 2005, that act makes sure there's legislation in place to make sure that you know if you are paying you know social welfare arrears or anything like that that there is a certain income level you can't fall below to make sure that you have enough money to meet your daily needs and that does not happen in a HAP. Local authorities give the HAP rate, they allow tenants then to make up the top up. Nobody is checking is it sustainable, nobody is checking have the people have enough money to live on. I'll give you an example, Rory. Um, I, yeah. And I, I, as part, as well as being Focus Ireland, as you know, I'm a spokesperson for Spark. So I came, which is single parents acting for the rights of kids. So I came across a lone parent yesterday. Um, really shockingly, she is on an income of about 248, 250 a week. She's a lone parent with a 14 year old child. 
her HAP payments a week between she pays her council, which is assessed at the fair social housing rate of, I think, 28 euro a week. But she's also paying about 73 euro a week to her land. That's over 100. It's about 105 euros, she said. She's paying a week out of, a, a week out of an income of 245 euro. 130 euro a week with the current cost of living crisis with inflation is not going to pay all her other bills and feed her and a young adult as well, a 14 year old child. She's obviously fallen into arrears with her top up. She's 900 euro in arrears in, in her top up and she is about to be evicted because of arrears on the account. Now, she set up a GoFundMe account and, and you know, she's hoping to get the 900 euro to stave off that eviction. But realistically, she's going to be back in the exact same position in six or seven weeks because she cannot pay 105 euro a week towards her landlord. It's just not sustainable. The social housing assessment has assessed her as being able to afford 28 euro. But because of the inadequacy of HAP, she's to pay another 80 euro. Not sustainable. And these are the people. You're saying, and, what, and what's worrying, more worrying, Rory's, she was in homelessness before. She did the right thing and used HAP to get out of homelessness three years ago. But because her HAP hasn't gone up in line with the rent increases, she's now at risk of going straight back into homelessness, costing the state more, apart from the trauma her and her daughter are going to go through. Yeah, no, and, and I'm thinking, I just, I'm shocked by your statement about the, she set up a GoFundMe account yeah. to try and cover the gap between HAP and the rent. That's in, it. because she's going to be evicted to try and cover her arrears. Yeah. That that's just horrific. That is absolutely it's horrific. it's horrific and and absolutely totally support her doing it. You, you know, she's a she's a mother desperate to keep No, it just shows how that. desperate, how desperate yeah, yeah. What, what situation we've Oh no, no, from. totally. And I know that you're coming from the same point of view I'm coming from. It's awful that people have to do that. And and even though I support her, you know, trying to do that, my yeah. fear is that that's not a long-term solution. She'll get no. out of the hole at the moment. Mm. She's so caught in the trauma and the crisis at the moment she's not seeing that she's going to be there's no way she can afford that money every week yeah. and she's going to be and, back there and, and this is something are you seeing the the cost of living crisis and inflation oh, totally. because you know we're seeing over the last six months that you know now inflation how we had this major crisis in terms of affordability of rents before that and how are people at you know, the very lower income ends managing that now. How much is that impacting? Again, Rory, I'll give you an example. Somebody put up a, a post in Spark recently and it was about, has anybody, and I thought it was a fairly innocuous statement. It was, has anybody noticed your shopping bill going up? No, I was about to, I was to go, yeah, you know. Yeah. And then um, I, there was another a tide of people came on that it actually hadn't hit me. And, and I don't think I'm away distant from poverty or frontline or anything like that. Yeah, I think I'm very yeah. much part of it, but it, this even shocked me. So when somebody put up this post and a few people did come up with, yeah, my shopping's gone from eight where it has gone from, but some, there was this group of people who came up with, no, my shopping hasn't gone up because I have a budgeted every week how much I pay for rent, how much I pay for heating, how much I pay for shopping. And there is no flexibility in that. I don't have room for flexibility. So my shopping is still 70 euro a week. The difference is I come home with less food each week. And oh that took my breath away. That really yeah. took my breath away. And, and when I just, I, I then, you know, spoke to that person afterwards and she said, 
so far her children haven't been impacted, but that she is now going without meals and eating toast for, you know, for, for her evening meal is toast. And, and like, how far do we go down before people, you know, reach the rock bottom? I mean, there is a cost of living crisis going on on top of the housing. And I think while we've always had the housing crisis for the last 10 years, it has been a crisis. I would now say it's no longer a crisis, it's emergency. Um, when you couple that with the fact that we've got this cost of living and the highest inflation since, you know, in the last 15 years, it really is putting certain households under so much pressure. Yeah, no, it is. It's so it's so important to highlight. Louise, just before you go, um, the in terms of solutions, uh, what, what do you think are a couple of key ones that could be done? Well, I think I think really we need to make sure that there's a ban on evictions until we get supply back on 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 stream. We have, you know, there was a lack of building for the last eighteen months. It dried up because of because of COVID and all of that yeah. associated. Um, and yet there hasn't now that the um, eviction ban has ended. There is a full tap of new people entering homelessness. We can't deal with that. We need to move people out of emergency accommodation into homes. So what I would suggest is we immediately need to implement the eviction ban again until we, well, obviously I'd prefer there was an eviction ban, you know, but indefinitely, but we need an ev- eviction ban. And then we also need to ensure that people aren't on this loop of, you know, using Hapton escape emergency accommodation, not supporting them when they're HAP properties by, you know, again, I have another case of a woman who's go- her rent is going up next month by 250 euro. As far as she's concerned, that's so unaffordable. She's gone back into emergency accommodation. When people are on HAP, we need to make it affordable. We don't need those caps. We saw that back in 2014, as you know, um, Rory, we have those bans on rent supplement where you couldn't go above a threshold and so many people ended up in emergency accommodation yeah you should learn from that mistake and what we shouldn't do is allow people return from from um, a half household into emergency accommodation because our rules aren't flexible enough to give them the extra 250 a month to keep them in their home we need to do everything we can to to prevent homelessness and at the same time then work through through the people who are long-term in emergency accommodation and move them on so there's two things i would say well i would say a lot rory but if you're giving me two yeah immediately support households to stay in their properties through eviction bans and through affordability of half um and then really strong prevention methods. As soon as somebody gets a notice of eviction, local authorities should step in immediately and do everything around, wrap around supports to keep them from avoiding emergency accommodation. Yeah. Well, listen, they're they're really important. And again, important we highlight these. Louise uh, Bayliss from Coordinator, uh, Campaigns Coordinator with Focus Ireland. Thanks a million for coming on Reboot today to discuss um, the Raise the Roof and the meetings. And we will talk to you again soon, Louise. Thanks. Thanks, Rory. Um, and now we're joined by, uh, we've McDara Doyle, who is um, the Raise the Roof uh, coordinator with the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Um, McDara, we were just talking to Louise there in terms of the homelessness crisis. From your perspective, what do you see um, is the kind of main, I know you're going to outline um, the kind of key things that Raise the Roof are doing. What do you see, or I suppose, is where is the housing crisis at right now? I think as Louise has very graphically uh, illustrated there, it's certainly not improving and it's certainly all indicators are, are that it's going are going in the wrong direction and that it's worsening at every at every single level. Um, you know, even since, as, as Louise has mentioned, even since the the eviction ban was lifted, we've seen, you know, and we know that evictions are the single greatest cause of homelessness. Um, we've seen evictions, we've seen evictions rise, we've seen homeless, homeless figures spike. So you have this doom loop 
um, that housing policy seems to be stuck in over, over the last several years that just seems to be worsening. Um, you know, and, and the problem here is that we may have, you know, there may be attempts to introduce kind of short or medium term solutions. The problem here is that you have a fund- fundamentally flawed philosophy and a fundamentally flawed housing policy, um, which keeps which has unchanged since, I suppose, since rebuilding Ireland, the same essential flaws running through that as running through housing for all. Um, so we keep repeating the same policies and expecting different outcomes, which, as you know, is you know close to Einstein's definition of insanity. Um, and the problem essentially is, is that we have a state that has, has effectively outsourced provision of housing almost entirely to the private sector. Um, and even with the best will in the world, even if they were minded to do so, that's an impossible task. They simply cannot fulfil the housing needs of an entire country. Uh, they, they, they build for certain discrete sectors. So that fundamental flaw, that fundamental philosophy, that fundamental um, error at the heart of our housing policy um, is going to produce, keep producing the same results if we keep persisting with it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of... Uh Unfortunately, a lot, a lot of truth. We're also joined by Lorcan Sir, uh, friend and uh, regular guest as well of the podcast. Lorcan, in terms of your assessment of where the housing crisis is at now and where it's likely to go in the coming months, what's what's your sense? What's your analysis? Well, looking at the figures, Rory, how are you guys? Looking at the figures, uh, Rory, of uh, output, in other words, what we're building. So there's a kind of a, a narrative out there that it's all about supply and supply, 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 and supply will sort us all out. Well, at that you know, isn't really true because, it, well, it's much more nuanced than that kind of simplistic approach. It's all about the right type of supply and the right supply at the right price. And what we've seen over the last five years is that output has gone up by, say, something like 45%. But actually, the amount of houses that have come on the market for sale, so available for people to buy, has gone down by about 45% as well. So last year, we built about 5,700 houses. Out of twenty, nearly 21,000 houses, only 5,700 came to the market. So unless we're building more houses for people to actually try and purchase or you know access, um, we're, we're going nowhere because the bulk of what's being taken, the bulk of the increase is A, social housing. And for every social house that we're building, we're buying two, which isn't a good solution. And also, it's the, the other, you know, 25% of all housing that we built is built to rent for funds, which is very expensive for average people on, on average wages, average households who don't necessarily want to rent either. So the supply narrative, even though supply is going up, it quite often it's the wrong type of supply for the vast majority of people, particularly the rental stuff. And, and you know, it's the wrong type of su- supply for people who don't need council housing either. Like there's a huge need in the middle there of middle earners between 36 and 90,000 euro income per household um, that needs to be addressed and it's not been addressed. And, and I just caught my diary there uh, saying that, you know, we're, we seem to be doing the same things over and over again. And I think that's right. And I also think that it's time that we called out the real culprits behind this. We've had 10 ministers in the last 20 years. The last something like, I worked it out there recently, something like 20 months each. Uh, yeah. Last, yeah. So they're not very long. Um, and what what you see happening is some of them are better than others, obviously. Um, but the, the real culprits are the people behind the scenes, which is the permanent service service. And, and there's lots of good people in the Department of Housing, don't get me wrong. But there is there does seem to be an ideology at the top of the department that's very that hasn't moved on uh, and hasn't accepted the reality of what's happening and the contagion of a lack of affordability is now spreading to, you know, to 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 people and professions that would normally have been untouched 
by a lack of housing out there. And the, 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 the focus on particularly the build to rent, which is expensive niche housing for a niche sector of the of the workforce, which is the, the tech workers, um, that focus is kind of ignoring then the real needs that are out there. And we can see this then in the numbers of first-time buyers are down hugely uh, in Dublin, down 30% in the last five years and second time buyers or movers who aren't necessarily all older people. There could be young people who bought an apartment on their own in their twenties and then in their thirties or whatever, forties now getting settling down with people that need a house more suitable for the needs. They're down 46% in Dublin and then 30% nationally. So they've nowhere to go to, they've nowhere to move to. So unless the, 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 the dial shifts, uh, as it says in Newstalk, move the dial, lads. Unless the dial shifts within the Department of Housing in terms of the way they think about things. Uh, and they keep interfering with the market. And the market will do its own thing uh, and react to what they're doing. Uh, and with, with quite often, they don't seem to have an ability to kind of look at the unintended or intended consequences of their actions. So, you know, removing height caps, allowing for smaller substandard units, no balconies, longer corridors, all that does is inflate land values. It doesn't mm-hmm. add to any more affordability. It actually makes things more expensive and not mm-hmm. less expensive. So I think we need to point the finger at the ministers for sure, but the finger of the other hand needs to be pointed very firmly at the Secretary General and his senior people in the department. Yeah, no, I, I think that there is a lot um, in terms of policy and policy has been driven by the department over the last you know, 20 years, even longer. Um, but there is a government there as well, and they have to take responsibility as having driven an ideology and you know, policy does change according to governments as well. And I think like if you look at some of the very significant things I think that are happening right now, you're right in terms of first time buyers. Like I was looking at the figures, just a fifth of new houses built, just 20 percent of new houses built in Dublin are being bought by first time buyers. Like that is really almost half been bought by institutional, either institutional investors or local authorities, but mainly institutional investors. And if we look as, as well, um, I think that there are there are real problems coming down the line in terms of, we saw from the Sunday Business Post last weekend, they're saying that certain developers are pulling the handbrake on, on developments um, that you could see a situation with rising inflation in terms of material costs. We see economic uncertainty, that it becomes even more that developers investment finance build more build to rent rather than actually housing, which they see is not sure if people can afford to buy this or not. Um, And we see this concentration even worse. And I think that on top of that, then you have this impact of the cost of living crisis, inflation on low paid middle income workers. And we saw, you know, creches saying that they can't open their creche um, because they can't get staff and they were in to live in the local area who can afford rents, like the wider impact on the economy now as well. Magdara, how do you see it in terms of, you know, we're now seeing inflation going through, um, you know, the highest in, in almost 38 years. The economic uncertainty is going to lead to, you know, some people are talking potentially housing price fall, potentially rents, but that's not, uh, we might see actually the, the kind of housing inequalities worsen with more economic um, uncertainty as those at the lower end are hit harder. Yeah, on, 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 on the current um, our current threat path we're on, yes, we will inevitably see that. Just to, just, just to re- reference one thing you said, um, while the government certainly did change, policy didn't, unfortunately. And as I said, the same essential thread runs through rebuilding Ireland as runs through. I was going to pick that up as well. Got there before you. Got there before you. And what you have now is a crisis upon a crisis. And I mean, you, you've got, you know, when you 
when you've got a system, it's a bit like COVID exposed the threadbare nature of our healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, the cost of living crisis is now exposing the threadbare nature of our housing provision. Um, you know, such as the affordability crisis in housing, and, and that's where we see it. It's a, it has been an affordability crisis for many, many years now. But the Nevin Institute, um, which is which is associated with the Congress of Trade Unions, estimated a while ago that approximately ninety percent of the population, given their income levels, would not be able to afford the the the, the average priced home in the capital city. I mean, that of itself says failure has failure written all over it in terms of policy. Um, and you know, so the, the, you see, the crisis has exposed, as I said, the, the threadbare na- nature of our housing provision, um, and it is unfortunately going to get worse because most of the levers in terms of the cost of living crisis are well beyond the control of government because they're international, they're global. Well, what do you the, think, Orkin, in terms of that? How this is feeding well, in and the economic uncertainty? Well, Where are we, we going? Uh, the thing I say to you when I give these talks, uh, and I was in Waterford on Monday night doing this, and, and it was, this morning I was uh, at another organisation doing this, and the, the, if, if people, so I put up a lot of data, and it's very hard for people to kind of remember all the data, but I, I say to people, the one thing I want you to remember is that good housing policy is good social policy. And it's also good education policy, it's good health policy, it's good transport policy. It's good, so you know. It's good. It's good economic policy. It's good fiscal policy. It's good gender policy. All those things are are revolve around housing because housing is a really basic need. Um, and if you get housing right, an awful lot of other things fall into place um, around families and economy and finance and everything like that. We've persistently got housing policy wrong. And and I, my Tara picked up the point before me. But when you said policies change, they don't, they don't really change. The overarching theme of the policies and the overarching driver of the policies hasn't changed in 20 more than 20 years uh, at this stage and now we're at the point in time where we have to offer private developers up to 144,000 euro to build an apartment with no discount coming out the other end pretty soon nothing will get built without a subsidy because if you can persuade government to give you up to 144,000 per apartment why would anybody else build anything without a subsidy? So yeah. it, 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 it kind of, it, it, we really, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of ideas here. And everything that happens in terms of policy, it has been price inflationary, not price, price deflationary. But also it, it's all, everything in, in terms of policy has been really uh, designed to avoid doing the thing that needs to be done on all roads. And whether you speak to private developers or whether you speak to, to hard left people, all roads lead back to the one solution, which is the state needs to be more involved, more hands on in the delivery of housing. And, and the longer they defer and delay on this, the broader the spectrum of people that they have to provide affordable housing for gets. So whereas it used to be maybe, a, you know, a Dublin bus driver or something like that on, on a relatively low wage, now it's people, you know, who have got degrees and master's degrees who can't afford a house. And, and you know, it's only the top percentiles who can afford to buy at this stage. So that that, that spectrum was getting getting wider. So we're just kind of digging the hole and everything is is designed around avoiding the obvious thing that we have to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, it, can, can I just make one point, Rory, on that? Yeah, I just got to follow on very briefly yeah. and then Mark Dyer come in. They, I think one of the key things around that is this question of, you know, that you're talking about spending on subsidies because it raises an important point. The government has been going on and the minister as well saying, we've never spent as much money. You know, we have the largest you know, housing budget in the history of the state. But actually, when you break that down, you see, well, a billion, one billion of the four billion is going to private landlords, mm-hmm. on leasing, so it's it's gone. It's not any investment in housing. Um, you're probably looking at in the region, maybe, um, Lorcan, I don't know if you've accurate figures on this, two billion maybe been spent on building housing because it's probably another, there is not probably, there is another billion going in the various 
subsidies, all the various other programs, that really it's less than half of the overall budget is actually building new housing. Yes. And even within that, it's buying housing as well. Unless you're adding to the stock, you're kind of throwing money down the drain, really, is the answer there. And the idea last week uh, that was pushed about increasing the half by 35%, you're going to see rents jump in line with that, uh, pretty sure, which is going to make the situation even worse for people. And um, so the government have kind of backed them, got themselves backed into a corner, or successful governments have uh, backed into a corner. But no matter what they do, they're kind of throwing fuel on the fire rather than rather than throwing sand on the fire. Um, and so I, I'm, their expenditure, like they can boast all they want. It's like boasting about how many houses they build every year. You need to unpick that number. And when you unpick that number, you see actually the amount of housing that's coming on stream for ordinary households and ordinary incomes has declined hugely uh, in the last few years. But yet the, the number of small one bed, highly lucrative, very expensive uh, apartments has rocketed from 10% to 25% of all housing output in the last five years. So it, you need to unpick the, the, the 4 billion number. I never take anything from the Department of Housing, to be really honest with you, at face value anymore because, anymore because they're so, you know, they're kind of professional people obfuscating and giving out kind of misleading numbers. So yeah, when you break it down, you'll find that they're not spent. Like, look, a local authority direct bill housing last year was about 1,400 houses. Of that, we also sold through tenant purchase schemes nearly 400. So the, the net output was just over a thousand houses yeah. from local authorities. Now, AHBs did more. Yeah, housing associations did more about a thousand. But even still, you probably only had the region of 4,000 units in the region built. And some of those were turnkey. McDara, you wanted to come in. Yeah, just just want to just go back to that, pick up on that point about around deception around of, uh, official figures or official pr- pronouncements. I mean, there's no better example than the the overall target set out in Housing for All, which is 300,000 houses over X years up to 2030. Sounds wonderful. Sounds it sounds like a fabulous target, and surely we'll be able to meet it all. But when you actually unpick it, only 144,000 of those homes are actually going to be provided are in the control of the state in terms of delivery. The other 156,000 are more or less an estimate of what they hope. And believe and think and pray the private sector may do, may, may may actually deliver. So again, it's this deception around the figures. And but- it's even worse than that, McDara, because they're even within their social housing mm. targets, mm. that is coming from part five. That is utterly dependent mm. on the private development that happens. Yeah. And also the affordable housing schemes are also market related, a lot of them. So even within the... And and, and some of the cost rental as well. So when you interrogate the figures a bit like the spending, they tend to just keep shrinking. Yes, Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do want to move on to solutions and I want to move on to raise the roof in terms of what people can do and how people can get involved. I was asking you beforehand to uh, set out your two key solutions. Do you want to go first, Lorcan, and then McDara, and then McDara, you can set oh, out. No, I, um, I've done enough talking. I'll let the other two go first. Then, and yeah. <laughs> oh, Louise, Louise is, is still there. Great. Louise, do you want to add any more in terms of that, what we've been talking about there? Do you, have you had any thoughts or... Yeah, I mean, I, I totally take on Lorcan's point about the 20% going up to 35% and it's fueling the market. But I'm also looking at it from a very pragmatic point of view that, you know, not putting up the discretionary rates, not putting up HAP um, was supposed to, you know, drive down the market. That did not happen. Um, and and there are people really struggling with that top up. So, yeah, I can see Lorcan's point, but I'm also looking at it from a front line, seeing people daily who are struggling and are way below poverty lines because they're making that. It's it's tinkering around the edges. I totally agree with that, Lorcan, on that. And we need something to change. Um, and the discretionary top up isn't going to be the change. There will be some benefit from couples being from single people being allowed the couple rate, 
it, it is about providing stability. I mean, everything that Mike Dara has said and Lorcan and yourself, Rory, we've all said it. We're all hoping for this magical bullet in 2030, you know, the, the, the full implementation of the housing fall strategy. We hope that things will be better. And we, we I suppose we have to hope on that. But the reality is, in the meantime, things have to change for people living now and they're not changing fast enough. And there's... I don't know what the solution is to that, but we need to have some sort of affordability. And I think it was Magdara who said the point, which is very accurate as well. A lot of the things that are happening at the moment, they're out of the control of the government. You know, the, the cost of living, the inflation, all of that is out of control. And I think, again, you know, bringing it back to the cost of living, this is the first time the housing crisis has really been linked to a cost of living and inflationary crisis. It is going to be explosive. And I think what we need to do is have targeted supports and make sure that those really at the, the bottom decile of income are, are, are supported because they are danger of being, you know, left literally going to food banks and, and um, losing homes and returning to emergency accommodation. And again, that's going to eat up the housing budget if we're having putting people up. And we've seen it. If you look at if you look at the analysis of of the, you know, I think if you look on Focus Ireland website, we've done an analysis of the cost of homelessness and the cost of housing and the absolute huge cost of housing people in emergency accommodation. If we don't get the facts right and if we push more people into emergency accommodation, that's going to wipe out the long term plan of providing social housing and affordable housing. And um, so we've got to shore that up some way. Mm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely. And, right. and I would, I suppose, I'll give one plug before I go. Um, the, the big cost of living um, marches on June 18th, and I think it would be, you know, it would be great to see people and the cost of living and everybody with a housing and a cost of living um, issue to be on the streets on that day because we need real hard, strong analysis and we need it to be evidence based and evidence led. And we need those who are most vulnerable to both these crises. And we know it's going to be the same people. We know it's going to be lone parents. It's going to be single people. It's going to be people with a disability. It's going to be carers. It's going to be travellers. It's going to be migrants. These are the people who are going to suffer the most. Um, so we need evidence-based approach to all of these solutions that come up. So again, as I say, Logan, I totally get your point about the 20% going to 35% is likely to fuel up inflation, but it wasn't changing it anyway. So the cost of that inflationary rent rises going up was literally being put on the burden of people who couldn't afford it. People who were assessed by the local authority as being able to afford 30 euro a week, but they were paying another 70 or 80 in addition to that weekly to top up. That had to end. It can't go on. Um, yeah. You know, Anyway. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. I get off my high horse. No, 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 no. It's no high horse at all. No, you're absolutely right. It's important that, you know, that the reality of, you know, of the front line of this needs to be highlighted and why that's needed. But of course, you're also highlighting that it's a, it's an illogical policy that, you know, has no end to it, you know, in terms of HAP. There's no limit. There's no there's no limit that will be enough if rents are continuously rising and not controlled look, look, and people can't can't be kept. Yeah. And, and Rory, I feel like I'm in, put in an awful position here because I certainly do not want to be supporting HAP. I don't think it is a solution for anything. No, no, absolutely not. But, but but at the same time, I'm dealing with people in a front line who are yeah. struggling because they're trying to bridge this gap where the government hasn't raised HAP since 2016, but allowed landlords to raise their rent. And it's it's those who can least afford it are bridging that gap. And something had to change. And, and while... 
increasing HAP is likely to lead to inflationary, not increasing it led to that inflation anyway. So Anyway, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's only going to lead to homelessness. But it comes back to the other point you make about, you know, uh, removing the ability of landlords to evict tenants when they're selling properties in order to keep people in their home there. And also the local authorities should be buying those properties as well, where tenants are in place as well. And um, I just go to, because I think you highlight a really important point, which is that, you know, what can we do and what should we be doing? And I think we do need to, you know, add our voices together because a lot of this is, you know, there is that sense of, you know, you know, people feeling despairing about it. There's nothing we can do. You know, what solutions are there? And so that's why the importance of this uh, raise the roof, you know, social movement coming together to highlight this. Maybe, Magdara, you could kind of outline, you know, what is yeah. raise the roof doing at the moment and, and the yeah. meetings? Just, just just the first point, just to back up what, the, what Louise is saying, just to say that the Congress Trade Unions is also fully supporting that initiative or that rally on June the 18th. Um, and we're asking people to come out for that that cost of living because it, it is seriously affecting um, you know uh, people at all levels. One thing to bear in mind in terms of, of of hope or in terms of where you see bright spots on the horizon or in terms of of turning the ship around is all of what we're seeing now results from very deliberate policy decisions taken in 2008, 2009, ironically in response to the the banking crash. Which set, which effectively took the state out of, got out of the state, got out of housing, uh, of housing provision in those years, and there was a, there was a, you know, there's legislation passed to that effect. Uh, spending collapsed by about eighty-five to ninety percent in terms of spending on public housing. So, the sense of hope comes from if the problems you're seeing now uh, arise from deliberate policy decisions, then it's not, I'm not saying it's a simple matter, but it is a matter of reversing and changing those yeah. policies. And you will see a change in outcomes and a change in, in how thing, in, in what's happening. In terms of Raise the Roof, we've we've kind of, I suppose, um, come back together post-COVID uh, and relaunched the campaign uh, in a more activist phase. Uh, and the initial part of that is a series of public meetings that have been taking place around the country. We've had two already, uh, Navin and Waterford, uh, which, which Lorcan mentioned earlier. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll have more taking place then in Limerick next week on June the 13th. Um, we're in Galway on June the 28th. We have a, a, a policy uh, kind of seminar in the Mansion House on the 21st, which we'll hear of, of uh, experiences from abroad in terms of how they provide local authority housing. So it's it's not such a major problem for, for other countries to do. Uh, the, sorry, the 20th of June was, was the one I mentioned in Galway. Um, and then we move into your turf, uh, Rory, physically speaking, uh, in Maynooth on July the 4th. And that's that initial, I suppose, that initial series of public meetings to try and build, first of all, to to, to, to demonstrate the fact that this goes well beyond Dublin. This is all over the country at this stage yeah. and this is being experienced everywhere. Similar problems popping up everywhere, similar manifestations of the same essential problem. And it's also, I suppose, to, to let people know that it's not all despair, that there are there is a credible alternative. There are credible alternative policies that can be taken. Um, and to give that, I suppose, that's that sense of hope and to try and build support for those alternatives and those th- th- those alternative policies, alternative possibilities around housing. Around housing. Um, and that's, I suppose, the, the, the purpose of this initial phase of meetings. Um, and that's what we're organising at the moment. So that's, as I say, ongoing. Yeah. So people can check those out. Um, yeah, it's on. you find it on the Raise the Roof website, full details of all the meetings, raisetheroof.ie. Raise the roof. Lorcan, in terms of you've spoken to two at the meetings, um, you're really getting out and getting around um 
because you're just so good at that. And so I'm on a world brilliant. tour of Ireland, but Rory. <laughs> a world tour of Ireland. I love it. Listen, in terms of the meetings themselves, how have they gone and what sort of what's been well, Lord, interesting I mean, around them? From, and, from, from what I've heard, um, extremely well attended, very well attended, really good engagement. And as I said, this remarkably the same problems that you hear about in Dublin, you're hearing in Waterford, you're hearing in Navin, you're hearing this, it's the same essential problem all over the country. And it's just different, you know, different places, but the same problem popping up everywhere. People telling of their, their experiences with the housing system, be it in terms of homelessness or be it in terms of just the desperate, sheer desperation, trying to find somewhere secure and affordable to live. Same essential yeah. problem everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Lorcan. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. So I just spoke at Waterford there the other night um, at the Race the Roof uh, event. And yeah, increasingly you find not alone is the spectrum of people and professions who get affected by this increasing and, and widening, but also especially uh, it's beginning to kind of hit into places that you wouldn't think would have a housing affordability problem or actually more realistic shouldn't have a housing uh, affordability problem. And that that that's really you know uh, an eye opener when you go to places like now Waterford is a fairly big place really but you know I I am very familiar with places in the Midlands and Galway places like that rural areas and they they're experiencing housing issues as well and that that that's something wrong when you when you ask me like some of the solutions one of the biggest relationships is between planning policy and housing output uh, and housing affordability and planning policy almost directly affects housing output and housing affordability. And we've made a series of changes to housing, to planning policy over the last few years that have made housing less affordable and not more affordable. So the first thing I would do, uh, if and when I'm ever Minister for Housing, uh, if I choose, well, yeah, ever, that'll never happen, obviously, but the poison chalice that is the housing ministry, uh, I'd be rolling back on all those planning policies that have made housing less affordable, not more. Like the Department of Environment or Department of Housing itself commissioned its, uh, itself to report uh, on building heights. And it said six stories is the optimum height for apartments in terms of finance and economies and affordability. Yeah. And then they went and lifted the building height caps, which is absolute nonsense. So the first thing I do is I roll back on a lot of really bad planning policy changes that they've made. I would tax the, the funds on landlords quite significantly. And at the same time, I would reduce tax for small landlords. We need whatever you think, or we need a functioning kind of rental sector to help. Like HAP isn't going away in the near future. We need a functioning rental sector for not just for HAP. That's the that's the last thing it should be used for. But for, you know, for churn and for for people who, who can't afford or, or don't want to buy a house. So I would reduce the tax on small landlords and try and keep as many of them in the market because the alternative is the big landlords. Uh, and and so you, you kind of need those. I think really, uh, if if what I would like to see is change of personnel, Department of, of Housing, I don't think I'm going to get that. But really what you could do is get rid of, like, funnily enough, one of the biggest impediments to the delivery of social housing is the Department of Housing's own convoluted four-stage process that local authorities have to go through. Uh, and there's no real evidence base for this and obviously about accountability and transparency but you know I would put more of the burden on local authorities and getting rid of the convoluted procurement process from the Department of Housing that seemed to be a barrier to the delivery of their own housing rather than a help so there are three things rolling back on policy uh, taxation of the different types of landlords at at different rates to kind of rebalance that uh, and also kind of you know, making the, the procurement system much more efficient for local authorities like for every house they're building they're buying two at the at the very least, it should be the other way around. For every two they're building, they should they should be buying one new one. Um, so we need to make that more easier for local authorities to go out and build, uh, rather than taking the easy route to get out and buying houses. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, and I think in terms of the planning and that, of course, the, the other planning I think that needs to be brought in, which Dublin City Council is proposing to do, which is the forty percent 
requirement of large developments to be for sale. And I think, yeah. you know, we're seeing the, the planning authority going against that, of course. The, it's- the planning regulators, just so people know, right, because people don't understand that the, the chair of Bar Planola was the former secretary general of the Department of Housing, but the planning regulator was the former principal planning officer in the Department of Housing when all these very bad planning policies were brought in. He was the man in charge. And now he is the, the planning regulator's job is to mark the homework of local authorities on their development plans to make sure that the bad policies he brought in when he was in the Department of Housing are now written into every development plan. Um, are now written into every development plan around the country. So this is bonkers kind of stuff. So I I, I wish Dublin City Council well, and I hope they they stick to their guns uh, in this. Yeah, no, and I think as well, you're absolutely right. The tax the tax breaks for the investor funds has to be removed because they are absolutely dominating the housing system. And in particular, I think the other issue is, is the land development agency and how that is operating. And in particular, we know the Okulon uh, Hugh Brennan, Okulon, the Co-Housing Alliance, we know that there's community groups around the country who've tried to develop affordable housing, but aren't been given land by the state. We know there's housing associations saying they'd like to build more, but they don't have access to land. That land, public land is not being used. We also know that you know, in North Dublin, in a deal with a private developer, um, Fingal County Council made a deal that involved um, uh, Glenvey, I think it is Glenvey, um, in building, but they are only drip feeding the units over ten years. So public land has been had a development plan, a development, um, basically a public-private partnership, where they've transferred the land to the developer to build housing, but only on a limited basis over ten years. I think there needs to be an acceleration of the building on public land, all state lands. And I think we do. I think we need a state construction company set up a state construction development company rapidly. Um, to actually, because we are going to see this inflation, cost of living, inflation, materials crisis continue with the whole thing, question of proper paying condition for construction workers. How do we make this a sustainable industry? Um, and I, for me, it's it just, it's a no brainer. Like we have, the state has to do this. Um, and I think as well that um, the other thing is the capital going, the capital allocated in the budget has to be significantly increased. And I think the coming budget, there needs to be a lot of pressure for that to be added, really that we should be spending $4 billion on actually building. So that means mm-hmm. the housing budget going over $6 billion a year. And then you're actually saying we're taking this serious. You know? Yeah. 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 I, I, I think that, that that would send the right kind of signal. And certainly our idea around the National Construction Company, it has value and has merit because the, the whole point of this, and Lorcan has made this point already, is, is that the state needs to become much more active and much more, take a far more aggressive and leading role in, in, in terms of housing provision. Um, I mean, at the, you know, and one of the other issues, I suppose, one of the key issues for us would be that, and you're right again about the spending, but they're fixated at the moment, and you see it in housing for all, with supply, with supply being the absolute metric and the absolute determinant of uh, how you fix this crisis. I think what you need to do is bring housing policy right back to square one and designate affordability as the absolute overriding goal for housing policy. You make affordability the key target for all housing policy, and you will see rapid changes then throughout the system. Because yeah. That's what they have to hit. If that's yeah. what they have, and, afford, and, and a, a proper definition of affordability, not some discount on the market rate, not 10% below market rate or whatever, you know, it's a dysfunctional market, so there's no, there's no point discounting off it. So it should be a genuine affordability, a definition of affordability linked in some way to incomes. Yeah. And, and Lorcan, just on, on the, I think uh, you're right, McLaren, I think it's affordability and it's access because you can mm-hmm. have affordable housing that people can't access as well, that we need enough 
supply of actually affordable housing that the as Lorcan makes the point that focusing on this you know units number of units when you've no idea what like are they affordable or not and yeah. also the affordability you're absolutely right I think it's particularly around the cost rental development as well the affordable housing that they are actually linked to income and not to market rates Lorcan another thing we haven't mentioned but something me and you discussed recently is the whole issue of vacancy and dereliction um, and we're seeing the uh, where the, the government are they actually going to do you think introduce a vacant uh, property tax in the coming budget or what? What's your sense? The department, uh, the minister for finance, seems to be very cautious, saying the revenue figures come, which haven't been published as far as I know, uh, which required under the local property tax people to actually say was their property vacant or not, um, or been used. They're saying that these figures show there's not a high level of vacancy around the country. Yeah, there's, well, always your... argument, there's always been this discussion and arguments about the, the true level of vacancy. And I remember when the census came out the last time in 2016, 182,000 you know vacant properties around the country. Fingal, when Paul Reed was in charge, would commission their own study that said the number was nowhere near that. And they did a survey of a sample survey of Fingal itself to prove that it was nowhere near. But of course, what they did was a desktop survey. They didn't actually go out and look uh, at property. So that seemed to be very much like a politically motivated uh, little piece of research that was commissioned there. Uh, by, by I think geodirectory, I can't remember. People can, can can look it up. So anyway, either, either way, I, I think the way the government look at this is kind of like revenue. You know, they do a kind of a cost benefit analysis. Would would we spend more money sending out bills and chasing property tax than the tax than the amount of tax that we'd actually bring in? And one of the problems we have in Ireland is a very basic problem like chasing, finding out who owns the property and then mm. finding out where they are, because we don't have the same systems of data and registration as they do in Norway and Belgium and other countries. Uh, we've been pretty lax on the whole, we're, we're bad on data anyway, but we're, we've been pretty lax on that whole keeping up to date with registries and, and, and who owns what. So the idea of spending a huge amount of, of you know, administrators' time chasing down people who might live in Canada or, you know, inherited a building 10 years ago and never went near it in East Galway. Um, is, I, I suspect that's what's going on, but also there's probably an ideolo- ideological um, you'd think for Fianna Gael, there'd be mantra attacks and things like, like like property, but they're not. I'd say there's probably an ideological opposition there as well. It, it's probably, it's a messy thing to do, not in normal countries, but in Ireland, it's it's a, quite a messy thing to do because we've been very bad at, like for, for donkey's years, we've just let people build what they want, where they want. And we've been bad at uh, putting manners on, on housing and property and land. And now belatedly we're trying to do it and we find that the systems and structures just aren't there. And to put them in place would cost a fortune. So Pascal, I would think, is probably looking at that and being advised by revenue and everybody else to say, look, we could spend, you know, 10 million euro a year trying to chase down McDonald and Lorcan and Rory and, 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 and Louise and everybody else and their vacant properties and we'll only bring in six. And I have a feeling that there's probably a touch of that going on. The principle of it, well, site value tax, I think, already was the thing to do. And we didn't bring in that before because the Commission on Taxation said that, oh, it's too complicated for people to understand, which was a real sop, a real silly thing to say because a site value taxation, it, it, it basically it's a taxation on the site, not the property. So it's not about the market value of the property. It's about the value of the site. And the way you calculate it is take the value of your house minus the cost of building that house and the residual is the site value and that's what gets taxed it's not very complicated to do insurance companies will have the reinstatement cost of a property on their website you go to where you live in in, in fairview or cabra or sutton or wherever it is you look at the market value of your house take away the cost of rebuilding that house and that's the site value it's a fairly straightforward thing to do they seem very reluctant to do that as well and of course what it doesn't tackle as well it do, as far as i know it won't tackle the issue of dereliction 
which is a wider issue, which we know particularly like GeoDirectory um, identified 28,000 derelict commercial buildings across the country. And that's probably at a minimum that there's a whole load of problems of, uh, you know, we can see it everywhere around us, you know, every town in the country, every city in the country. And um, a lot of people often conflate the vacancy and dereliction, but dereliction is treated differently and is actually something that, you know, needs to be tackled as well. Yeah, well, like it's funny when you drive around the country, and I know you drive around Ireland regularly, uh, that you'll see a brand new... No, just to Waterford and Galway. <laughs> but I have to go through everywhere <laughs> to get there. <laughs> I go. I, 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 yeah. I go to Waterford via Donegal. The it's it's mad that when you see kind of half fallen down houses, or well, not half fallen. When you see empty houses, fairly good empty houses, just a bit run down, and next door to it was a brand new house. And yeah. you kind of go, like the most sustainable house you can have is the one that already exists. Yeah. You yeah. Kind of wonder what kind of planning authority a local authority gave planning permission, or why do we tolerate so much vacancy uh, and dereliction in the country? So vacant is vacant housing uh, and derelict and, and, and obsolescence. You're always going to have obsolescence, like housing houses falling out of use altogether. If vacant and derelict, you, you can kind of do something with them. But why do we tolerate? Yeah. such treatment of properties it's like when you drive around you see people with old cars from 1992 like in a ditch in their front garden and you kind of why do we tolerate this nonsense like tractors in the yard that haven't been used in 40 years like we, we a, a tractor and a, house, and a car is something but as you say you know a house is a fundamental human yeah, but why do we tolerate people yeah. the way people can treat their their property in general in, in terms uh, of the ownership the of course, yeah. yeah because the question is of course what it points is that some people own multiple property, properties and many too many own none um, MacDara, last uh, point in terms of the right to housing, because that's a really important part Absolutely, of component yeah. of yeah. Raise the Roof and something that yeah. listeners of Reboot would be very familiar with that uh, myself and others have been advocating. Um, it, it is a key part of it, isn't it, to get a referendum to insert the right to housing in the Constitution it, it, and get our policy yeah. and practice driven by the right to housing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, it, it, it's not, and everybody who's, who's proposed and supported this agrees, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to transform the situation overnight, but it will provide that fundamental underpinning for all housing policy um, and give people some sense and, and send a, a very important direction or signal about the direction of travel uh, and about the, the, the philosophy that underpins our policy. Um, and it's, it's, it's absolutely essential that we number one get a credible kind of referendum proposition uh which is being debated at the moment by the housing commission we expect to see something emerging on that later this year probably after the summer um and it's fun as i say important we get that and secondly more importantly that we win it um and and, and insert that concrete solid tangible right that gives some gives people something um the form of that is being discussed in debate at the moment, and you know we'll have to see what proposition emerges. But I think if you you know if you want to do a very simple exercise, if you look at the forces that would be and are arranged against that, it should give you a very very clear uh, uh, reason as to why it should become a reality. Yeah, and just to finish on that, uh, Lorcan, I think it is a sign of hope the values shift that has been going on as a result of people been really scarred and hit by the housing crisis really over the last decade the, since the crash, that there is a value shift. We saw opinion polls, successive opinion polls showing that the majority of people, overwhelming majority, want house prices to fall. I don't think we've ever seen those opinions polls before, but also the majority of people in favour of a right to housing in the constitution. I think there is a value shift going on 
um, amongst most people who see we need a change to yeah. deliver a housing system based on human rights, not property values. Yeah, and you see that the more urbanised a country becomes, the more the value systems change. And Ireland has, has become quite an urban country in the last 20 years. Uh, well, it's gone on since 1966, but like it, it's, it's, it has accelerated a lot in the last 20 years. And the more people live in urban areas, doesn't matter where they come from, could come from the urban area, they could come from inside or from outside. Their, their value systems change, and this gets reflected down at the polls uh, with government. So you see steadily as 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 uh, as the urban as as rural Ireland declines, basically the population of rural Ireland declines, or the percentage of people living in rural Ireland. You see the the share, the first preference share of the votes of the main parties decline, mirroring that in, absolutely in parallel with the decline. And and the same in urban areas, you see the smaller parties and the more independent parties um, increase. And a lot of that is to do with housing because housing is primarily an urban problem it's not you know it's it's significant everywhere but it's much more accentuated in urban areas so uh, politicians like it can be tone deaf to this um i i, I gave I, I gave this talk to Fianna Fáil Ardesh and Fianna Fáil a couple of times over the years and in fairness to me on martin like whatever you think of him he got this but getting the message across to his membership is, is a different thing so unless they can stop arguing over turf and start getting their priorities in order uh, around housing, um, they're going to end up decimated in places like Dublin. Like Sinn Féin in the last 30 years have gone from zero to nine seats in Dublin. Fianna Fáil have gone from, I think, 21 to seven. Fianna Gael have gone from 14 to eight. Uh, and the Greens have gone from zero to six or whatever they have. Um, so you can see the shift in urban areas. So the, the main parties, Fianna Gael won't suffer as badly as Fianna Fáil because the, the pro-development measures that bring in Fianna Gael voters and they'll vote for that. But... Fianna Fáil don't know where they're at with this, and they're going to get decimated um, more than what's twice decimated. They're going to get they're going to get really hammered at the next election unless they get real with the need to address this. And I can't understand the tone deafness that's going on in the Department of Housing and with the minister and their advisors that they can't see how this is going to really hurt them at the polls. I think Fianna Gael are probably happy enough to go into to go into. Um, um, opposition for a few years and, and kind of regroup and recalibrate themselves and all that kind of stuff. I can't see Fianna Fáil wanting to do that. Um, and so I, I don't understand why they don't, why they're not listening to the electorate in urban areas, really, instead of arguing over turf and slagging off, you know, everything else. You really should be kind of, you know, they're missing the picture here. The stare yeah. Them yeah, I, I think that alongside the urbanism and the, the growth, I think is the, what uh, Carl Polanyi, who is the, um, economic, cultural economist uh, had a, a really interesting theory, which was about that when markets dominate in societies, that they lead to this kind of social reaction because markets create, particularly in areas like housing and, you know, health and education, they create such inequalities that they lead to this social reaction. Essentially, you know, you were making that point earlier. So much of the population have been excluded from housing now and are suffering from housing because the market has been let be basically become the dominant uh, provider that people across social classes are saying we need a major change and shift in how we, we deliver housing. So I think that's the hope. Listen, thank you so much. Um, Magdara Doyle from ICTU and Raise the Roof and Lorcan Sir as well. And thank you also to Louise Bayliss, Campaigns Coordinator with Focus Ireland. The meetings are being held around the country um, in the coming weeks and you can check them out. Um, there will be one in... Um, Limerick, have, Limerick next Monday, June I have the details here. I was getting yeah. them there. Yeah, go for it, McDowell. Yeah. Limerick on Limerick, Monday. June the 13th. Limerick, June the 13th. Um, Galway, June the 28th. Manute, yeah. July the 4th. 4th. And there is a sem- there will be a policy seminar there in the Mansion House on the 21st. 
Yeah, that's great. And people can check it out, raisetheroof.ie. Listen, thank you so much for joining me today on Reboot. And hopefully that will give people lots of uh, interesting ideas, analysis, and um, also inspiration and hope that we can change this and get involved as well. Um, And we will, you know, continue to highlight these. And and if you do have a story um, in terms of your own housing experience, we heard from Lisa um, last week, uh, Lisa and Kerry, who outlined her experience and the challenges and the trauma of, of losing her and her daughter's home. You can listen back to that. Um, but if you do want to tell your story, absolutely get in touch um, at Reboot Pod or at Rory Hearn on Twitter or at Rory Hearn on um, Instagram as well. Or uh, you can just, you know, email us at RebootRepublic at gmail.com. Um, and please do share these around. These are, um, as we say, they're information podcasts, podca- podcasts of inspiration, tools for social change, um, we things will only change when we raise our voice and we get active together and we we advocate and make the case for these alternatives. So, thank you m- very much for listening, and we will talk to you all soon. <laughs>